This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This is another podcast of World Wide Wave, the international LGBT news and current affairs show, every week on Australia's first LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. The obvious question to start is, uh, how did the first, what was then Gay and Lesbian History Month, get its start? I was a secondary school teacher in a suburban St. Louis high school in the early 1990s, teaching American history. And I recognized that in my history textbook, the one the department approved, the assigned textbook of 800 pages Uh, there was not a single reference to any LGBTQ person, event, movement, nothing. If an LGBTQ person was mentioned, they were mentioned without that information being provided. Um, And I had long been a practitioner of or participant in Women's History Month, which in the USA is in March and Black History Month, which in the USA is in February. And Black History Month really is the first commemorative month that we have. And it started in 1926. Mm -hmm. Uh, A Black historian, Dr. Carter Woodson, only the second African-American to graduate from Harvard, the only African-American whose parents, both parents were enslaved to ever graduate from Harvard. And he believed in the power Uh, and the importance of history in his community, which of course had been, you know, relegated to the sidelines, if that, by white historians. So he created Negro History Week in 1926, and that evolved into Black History Month in the 1970s. But from that commemorative event uh, came the idea of these various other sorts of history months for other communities of individuals who had been left out of the story who weren't part of the narrative, who didn't get a piece of that historical pie. And as a a young teacher at the time, someone who thought that Women's History Month and Black History Month were important and helpful and had indeed helped me evolve and grow. And I'm not a woman, I'm not Black, but they very much helped me uh, grow and understand the bigger picture of American history in my case. So I thought that those would be great models Uh, particularly Black History Month. And in January of 1994, I typed up a two-page proposal, what History Month is, what it could be for our community, why it would be important for our community. And I selected a month in the USA, October, why October would be the right month for the community in the USA. I sent that to all the then-known LGBTQ organizations in the USA via postal mail, of course. I didn't even have an email address in at this time. And asked them, would you endorse it? Would, would you say this is a good idea and we'll back it? And immediately, a lot of people and institutions uh, that were viable and existed in 1994 came back with endorsements. And that October 1994 was the first then called Lesbian and Gay History Month uh, in the USA. And from that point forward, it's evolved in the US and then also now internationally. And what does a LGBTQ plus History Month typically involve now? 
Well, it can involve anything, really. Um, there are lectures, of course, that are held in various locations. Uh, there are film festivals. Uh, there are drag shows sometimes. Um, there are all sorts of events online. I would say this past October, as I monitored the situation, there were probably in the U.S. three, maybe 4,000 events wow. uh, all over the place. Uh, Syracuse University in New York had 30 events in that one university throughout the month of October. Uh, because, you know, October also includes national or international now coming out day on October 11th. So that's part of, of the, the entire event. So anything can happen. Uh, anything that a particular school community uh, or a community organization would like to see happen uh, for their locality. Um, a lot of in the U.S., some of the pride festivals are beginning to happen uh, occasionally in October because June is sort of a hot and muggy month. And October is a, a pleasant in, in the U.S., a fall month with the trees and all their glory and so on. Uh, so it's really open to what the community would want. Archives often have events. Uh, history museums have events dedicated to LGBTQ-specific uh, history during that month. We have Pride Months and Pride Festivals. Why do you think history needs its own point of focus? Well, they're both so important, aren't they? Because pride evolves out of history, and then history is made in pride. If in the U.S., June had also been within the academic calendar, perhaps there could have been Pride and History Month. But in the U.S., all of our schools are closed in June, uh, at least 98% of them. So it had to be within the academic calendar. But I think that they're different in that pride is about exerting our right to exist now in a prideful status and, and not the negative sense of the word prideful, of course, and even a joyful status. It's to exert our right to be and to be happy and to be who we are in the here and now. History Month is taking that lens and looking backward where we were where we came from, what happened in the past. Because all of us on this International Committee on LGBTQ Plus History Months believes that history has innate power to not only inform, but also to enlighten and to provide a path forward and to give lessons and wisdom on what worked in the past and what didn't work. Uh, in addition, of course, it's a sacred obligation. Most of us on this committee would feel that we remember those who came before us. We remember what they did. We remember the community they built. We remember that we are where we are now, even with the various drawbacks that we might have in terms of different nations not being as warm and welcoming. We're where we're at because of what they did. So history and pride matter, but they are, in a sense unique and separate from one another, but also connected in a really strong and, and important way. Two sides of the same coin, perhaps. That uh... I love that analogy. That's it. Two, two uh, sides of the same coin. There's 8 billion people in the world. Everybody has their own history. What makes something or someone stand out as historically significant? 
Well, a person can be historically significant for magnificent and wonderful reasons, and also for uh, reasons that aren't magnificent and wonderful. So let's stick with the good, the good side. Uh, these are the ones who can see beyond their current time. They can imagine a future that doesn't exist. Uh, they are not tied down only to their place and circumstance. They're able to see a path toward a future that is, in the case of our community, uh, more just, uh, more inviting, more warm, more inclusive. And they're not afraid ultimately to take serious risks toward furthering their vision. You know, in the U.S., Martin Luther King stands out, for example. He saw a beloved community that did not exist, but he knew it could exist. And then he spent his life trying to will into existence that beloved community. And in the end, at age 39, he sacrificed his life for that vision. So these are the ones who stand out. Uh, those who create institutions within a community that endure beyond their lifetime, you know, they stand out. Uh, those who have a, a new way or a fresh way of seeing why things are as they are, they stand out. Uh, so these are the ones who make history and move the conversation forward. And those of us in this History Month community believe that they offer, though, though they're dead now, uh, they still offer wisdom and lessons uh, from which we can gather strength and we can gather uh, a viable plan forward uh, to even an even better uh, future than we currently have. And role modeling, perhaps? Absolutely. When I was coming out, it was very difficult. I knew I was, I was gay when I was eight years old, but it took me a long time to fully understand that. And part of what helped me was finally when I was in graduate school working on a master's degree in history, I had professors who talked about labor history, social history, urban history, women's history, LGBTQ history, and it was a brand new world for me. And indeed, Henry Gerber, for example, who founded the Society for Human Rights in the USA in Chicago in 1924, all right, there's someone who had ideas an interest and or an orientation similar to mine, and he lived a long time before I was was born. Let me learn from him. Let me grow from his experience. And this gave me a lot of power, you know, as an individual coming to understand who I am, existing in a world that was not warm and welcoming. So these role models certainly provide for young people a sense that they are not alone now. And we didn't just come up with LGBTQ people three months ago or three years ago or 30 years ago. There have always been people like we are. And that gives one an opportunity, I think, to place oneself in the narrative, you know, in the human story. You're able to identify a place where you belong. You know, we, we identify through different means of our personalities and uh, ethnicities and nationalities. And when we study those with sexual orientation 
and gender identity, quote unquote, minority status. It helps us also place ourselves rightfully in that narrative and that long train of human history. Now, that little idea of yours from nearly 30 years ago has turned into a bit of an international movement. Uh, Tell us about the International Committee of LGBT History Months. Well, History Month USA started in 1994. Uh, The second one started in the United Kingdom in 2005. Uh, Sue Saunders is the co-founder of LGBT History Month UK. And then over time, other places adopted this idea or concept of a history month. Beginning about a year ago, I came into contact with a group of Italian academics and activists who wanted to start LGBTQ History Month Italy. And we began having a conversation about what it was they were doing and if there was any information I could provide for them that might be helpful. And out of that conversation came the idea that we actually need an LGBTQ plus history month international group. So we started recruiting individuals who were already involved in the history months in their nations or in their cities in the case of Berlin. And in January of this year, 2022, we met via Zoom, about 19 of us from about 17 or 16 different uh, countries. And then we've been meeting quarterly. Uh, We're putting a website together with uh, information about how to create a history month. And out of our committee this past May came the first history month in Cuba, uh, the first history month in Latin America. Um, and the two of the individuals who are involved on that founding committee of LGBTQ History Month Cuba are now on our international committee. So any organization that has an official history month in their location who would like to be part of our international committee, up to two representatives can come on the committee. And we work with each other. We support each other. We provide information, wisdom, ideas to each other. Uh, new nations that are wanting to, you know, come on to this idea themselves and incorporate it into their own unique location can join our committee. We'll provide all the information and help and support that we possibly can. All of us on, on this committee are we're academics or activists, uh, historians or teachers, and we truly have a profoundly fundamental belief in the value and importance of history. And we want to do everything we can in our LGBTQ plus community to make that history available to everyone. Australian historian Graham Willett said that we're in a queer moment so that there is this um, surge in interest in LGBT history. Why do you think that is? It's a really good question that I've tried to come to understand myself, because certainly in 1994, when I was starting the History Month in the USA, we were not in a queer moment of any kind. And so we have seen an evolution, and Graham is right. He's absolutely right that this is, it seems that finally percolating beneath the surface, these ideas and this community and these concepts And then finally, you know, the coffee is brewed and you begin to serve it. And that seems to be where we're at. And I think part of that reason is because of social media, frankly. You know, we are now 
an international community with social media. Uh, we've seen globalization now, and we're all, you know, putting these ideas out there, and they're bouncing off everyone else, and they're being seen by someone in in Kenya, which I've just had conversations with individuals in Kenya who who just this year really started their first uh, History Month, LGBTQ plus History Month. So I think the idea has finally gone uh, above ground fully. I think that you had to have a certain level of uh, individuals who are safe enough to be out and open on the job in the workplace, particularly in schools and in education and at universities. And so we've just generated a lot of energy around the idea. And the idea now that history matters is, I think, ingrained in all of us in this community because we've all learned and grown ourselves as we've studied queer history. And I think Graham is absolutely right that this is a queer moment uh, for this history. And this is a time in which we're going to be able to see uh, this idea evolve in other places. Next year, in fact, there'll be the first LGBTQ History Month Ireland. Um, I'm just beginning to have some conversations with someone who's been doing LGBTQ history in Ireland for a long time. And she and her group, Queer Culture Ireland, uh, they've decided it's time to have the first official month there. So the idea continues to grow and evolve. And my hope is that eventually um, History Month will be as well known and as widely commemorated as is Pride Month. Fantastic. Is the involvement in History Month a generational thing? Is it mainly sort of older people or are you finding that young people are wanting to engage and find out what LGBT history is, you know, what has come before them? You ask really good questions. Um, I would say that for those of us in the over 40 community, since we were not taught any LGBTQ history when we were in school, even in university, if we're over 40, uh, we're recovering the history now because it's something we never had access to. The young ones, particularly the under 25, they are demanding that they be taught history now. They want to be taught this history when they're 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. And I do find that it seems to me among LGBTQ plus youth, there is an interest in history that is greater than the interest in history in the general population of young people their age. And I think that's part of the craving for a deeper desire of understanding of who they are and who people were in the past who were in a similar situation. So I think it's both actually, which would not probably be the case in the general population. In the general population, I think the over 40 are more interested in history uh, than are the under 25. But in the LGBTQ community, I think the interest is about the same. Wow, that's really interesting. Rodney, let's talk a bit about you. You were the first openly gay public school teacher in Missouri, which you've described as, you know, Trump heartland, and we're talking 1990s here. Tell us what that was like. Well, there came a point at which I was out to everyone in my life, family, friends, community, but I wasn't out on the job, not to colleagues and certainly not to students. In the U.S. in the 1970s, there was so much backlash 
against the concept of LGBTQ teachers. Um, there was Anita Bryant in 77, the Briggs Initiative in 1978, uh, Oklahoma legislation uh, the next year that that made it illegal to have LGBTQ teachers. And I was a boy at the time. I was 12 in 1977, and I remembered these things. They were in the atmosphere and percolating around. So I really didn't think I could be a teacher. I didn't think it would be allowed. I didn't think it was possible, truly. So I was going to do something else. I was going to work at a Walmart, which is um, a retail store in the United States, because that seemed, my mother did that. I can't be a teacher, so that's what I'll do. And I went to work at a Walmart, worked there two and a half years, and then recognized this just wasn't for me. So I went back to, I went to college at age 21, not at 18, out of high school. And I decided I would be a teacher, but I knew I would have to keep this a secret. And I took a lot of steps that first and second year teaching to make sure that no one found out that I was a gay teacher in that school. There were some other gay teachers in the school, LGBTQ teachers. We knew each other. You know, we came to know each other, but everyone was silent. I was the youngest one. They were in their 40s and 50s. They'd been teaching for a while. I was new and fresh. And I just came to a point to believe that if I wanted to be a fully integrated human being in this very short period of time that we get on this earth, I had to tell my students and in March 1994, I did tell them what was happening uh, in context of a, a lesson we were having on World War II and the Holocaust and the various groups that were part of the, 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 the effort of Nazis to rid the world of those they didn't like, primarily, of course, Jews, but also others, including uh, homosexuals. And I told my students with a poster there from the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. that included a pink triangle, that had I been there at that time, I might have had to wear a pink triangle. I may have been among the persecuted. If I had been Jewish, I would have told my students I'm Jewish in that lesson. If I'd been a Jehovah's Witness, I would have told them I'm a Jehovah's Witness. There's the purple triangle for me. Uh, my connection to that event was the pink triangle. And it did cause a lot of controversy in the St. Louis area, and then that spread into um, a few national publications and uh, national uh, television stories. Uh, there were school board meetings of those who were, were very unhappy with what I had done and felt it was completely unacceptable and that I should be uh, released from my position. Uh, but I wasn't. I, I taught... Uh, that year, which was my fourth year, and I taught three additional years at that high school uh, before I moved on to other areas in education. And what about the kids? How did they react? Generally positive. Uh, there were a few who were um, upset and maybe even hurt a little by this information because they they had a rapport with me. They liked me. They enjoyed my classroom. They thought I was a good person. And then suddenly I'm telling them this bit of information that their religion-based views had suspicion about. And there was some of that. I did receive, I remember once I received under my classroom door that passage in the book of Romans, uh, that clobber passage 
about uh, men with men, and it was in German. It was a German translation of the Bible, which I thought was really odd and unusual that somebody would put a Bible verse under my door in German. I'm not sure what message they were sending there, but you know, I had I had come out in the context of the Holocaust, so maybe. Uh, but generally, I would say it was a positive. I think young people, young people have not yet, even if they're being trained by their parents to have similar political, religious views and to like the same sports teams and so on that their parents like, they're not fully formed yet. They've not yet had a chance to make a choice. And when young people do make a choice, it seems to me after working with young people now for 32 years, they are more likely than not, when they have an opportunity to make a choice, to choose the better way the more inclusive way. Yes, sometimes they choose to be bullies and so on, of course. But generally, you say, here's A, here's B, here are the ramifications of A, here are the ramifications of B, which one do you want? They're going to choose the better one. And I think that's what happened in, in my circumstance and situation. In creating what you have, both from the LGBT History Month in the USA, but also now this worldwide movement that's growing, you yourself have become a part of history. How does it feel to be a part of something that um, future generations will look at, will study, and will hopefully embrace? Well, I think we all want to be remembered, probably. And as I'm getting older, you know, I'll be 58 my next birthday. My father died at 60. So, I do think about that question. I would hope to be remembered as someone who did do one little something at a point early in his life that had meaning beyond that moment and beyond that immediate circumstance. That would I would be very grateful for that and humbled to know that that might be a possibility. Well said. Rodney Wilson, the founder of LGBTQ History Month USA and co-founder of the International Committee on LGBTQ History Months. Thank you so much for joining us on Worldwide Wave. Thank you, Matt. It's uh, been a pleasure. And if I ever make it to Australia, I'll let you know and maybe we can meet face to face. Thanks for listening to another podcast from Worldwide Wave, the show that takes you around the globe one country at a time. Worldwide Wave is the international news and current affairs show on Australia's LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. You can listen live every Tuesday night on 94.9 FM in Melbourne and online at joy.org.au. You'll find all our podcasts at joy.org.au slash worldwidewave or follow us on Facebook for the latest international LGBT news Search W3Joy on Facebook now. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.